We try really hard to make sure our, our waiver members and our providers know about abuse, neglect, and exploitation, how to prevent it, how to report it, those kinds of things, but it still happens you know, fairly often in our population. Welcome to the podcast, Pathways to Safety, Bridges from Adult Protective Services to Community-Based Service for Adults Experiencing Abuse, Neglect, and Exploitation. We come to you with the goal of introducing community partners in Montana who work together to assist victims and survivors of adult experiencing abuse, neglect, and exploitation. My name is Marianne Liu. I am your host today to meeting one of these community partners in Montana. Before we start the episode, a quick disclaimer. This podcast is supported by the Administration for Community Living, the United States Department of Health and Human Services through a 2021 Elder Justice Innovation Grant, with Montana Adult Protective Services being our primary community partner. Grantees carrying out projects under government sponsorship are encouraged to express freely their findings and conclusions. Nonetheless, our findings, conclusions, point of views, or opinions do not necessarily represent the official policy of the federal government. Now, let's join our guest in the conversation. Hi, everyone. Today we have Shannon Cole Merchant with us today. Hi, Shannon. Hello. Could you start by telling us who you are, including your professional position and your role with your agency? Yes, my name is Shannon Cole Merchant. I am the Community Support Supervisor for the Developmental Disabilities Program with the state of Montana. I oversee the five regions for our state developmental disability services. So I directly supervise the regional managers out in the communities where we have providers. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit more about, well, I mean, you already covered this, who does your agency serve, but also a little bit more about what does your agency do, like some of the details of your waiver programs, especially. So the Developmental Disabilities Program administers the O208 waiver in the state of Montana, and we serve the population from birth till death. And we typically serve people with an IQ of 70 or below. People who are served by our services need to meet our eligibility criteria, and that differs from state to state. So it can, you know, if somebody moves here, it can be a little different than what they had in their previous state. Our waiver serves people who are totally dependent for everything, all the way up to very independent people who, you know, just need a little bit of support, maybe somebody to stop by and give them their meds or to take them grocery shopping, et cetera. So we have a wide range of services. We serve people in group homes, in supported living sites, in assisted living, in day programs, in community jobs, just a wide range of different services that we provide under our waiver. Could you tell us a little bit more about what is a waiver program and, you know, who your providers include? So a waiver program is administered through CMS, the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services. And what it allows is for states to provide services to a target population, and it allows us to waive some of the criteria for regular Medicaid so that people can be on Medicaid and get our services because they need something. So we have a physically disabled waiver. 
we have a severely disabled mental illness waiver and we have the DD waiver. We might have one other one, not remembering, but the DD waiver is the one that we administer and it, you know, we have to be accountable to the federal government for different performance measures that our providers are setting or are meeting throughout each calendar year. And our providers are people who contract with us to deliver the actual service in the communities. So we have providers who provide nothing but employment supports. We have providers who do all residential and don't do any of the workday stuff. We have providers who will do adaptive equipment, those kinds of things. So it just depends on what they want to provide, I guess, and what their agency kind of is specialized in. We have providers who contract with us and the other waiver programs in Montana. So they're not just serving one population, but they serve all the waivers. So, And DD stands for developmental disabilities. Is that right? Correct. Correct. Sorry, I will say DD often. <laughs> so with the goal of this particular project on abuse, neglect, and exploitation of adults, could you tell us about some common types of abuse, neglect, and exploitation experienced by the DD population? I would say the most common type of abuse that we have reported through our incident management system is verbal abuse. Neglect, that one's a little hard for me to say what's most common. We have, you know, people who are left unattended when they're supposed to have staff available. We have families who maybe left their individual at home and something bad happened, those kinds of things. Exploitation, definitely financial exploitation is the biggest, the most common that we get reported in the DD population. Are the perpetrators family members or scammers? Both and oftentimes our direct care staff. So a lot of times we're working with a lot of staff who maybe aren't all that well educated and who haven't, you know, been in this line of work before. And it's one of those things that just happens. We try really hard to make sure our our waiver members and our providers know about abuse, neglect, and exploitation, how to prevent it, how to report it, those kinds of things, but it still happens fairly often in our population. Well, can you go into a little bit about how does your agency work with these adults who experience abuse, neglect, and exploitation, and also are there services that your agency provide them? Yeah, so what we do is we require an incident report for any kind of abuse, neglect, or exploitation. And those incident reports are reviewed not only by the provider that's providing services, by the case manager who's assigned to that member, but also the quality improvement specialist that's a state staff. And then as a state, we once a week look at all incidents, critical incidents, and talk about you know what's happening with abuse, neglect, and exploitation. We also do trending for those items. And then, you know, depending on what the issue is, we may assist providers with extra funding in order to provide more services to someone, or we may get somebody who wasn't in the waiver into the waiver because they experienced abuse, neglect, or exploitation, and they need to move from their current situation into like a group home or something like that. You know, those things all feed into what services the person would receive it's kind of like a needs assessment, I would say. And uh, abuse, neglect, and exploitation yeah. is a high consideration. Interesting. So I understand that, you know, your agency works really hard to provide each member with like a personal support plan as part of their 
person-centered focus, you know, kind of service provision, and use collaborative approach like teaming, T-E-A-M-I-N-G, and really try to encourage members to set their own goals, so the goal-setting part of things. So could you tell us a little bit about that process of creating these plans and why those plans are important and what are they, you know, used for? So the personal support plan is important because it drives the person's service delivery. So our funding source, CMS, requires each person that's in services to have a plan of care. And in Montana, that's called the personal support plan or the PSP. And they sit down with their case manager and come up with things that they may want to do in that year. They have to have a plan done annually. And then the providers set what we call actions or, you know, like goals, like objectives for goals. So then they come up with how they're going to help the person reach that goal. There's a lot that goes into creating it. The providers do assessments individually with the person. The case manager does some interviewing and some assessing as well. We get medical information every year. You know, it's a pretty big document at the end of each year. But they're really important for driving what services and what funding the person's going to need. And then in that yearly event, they also review with each member, the case managers review with each member, how they would contact APS if they experienced abuse or neglect or exploitation. So that's done annually during that time as well. So there's lots of reason why those plans are important. I'm not sure I'm capturing all of them, but there's many reasons. <laughs> That's fascinating. And you mentioned adult protected services as, you know, if they experience abuse, neglect, and exploitation. So I think it's a great segue in talking about how you work with adult protected services. So, for example, do you do referrals? Do you get referrals from APS? And what about other collaborations? In my current role, I don't make referrals that often, but I have in my previous roles. You know, when I was a case manager and even a quality improvement specialist, I have made referrals. But we do get a lot of referrals from them if they are called out to a case where somebody is visibly developmentally disabled and they've never been hooked up with us. We do get referrals from them quite often. We work closely with them because our incident management system requires that we have that sharing of information. So when they do an investigation for abuse, neglect, or exploitation on one of our members, then they send us the findings letter when they're done with that. And that findings letter is uploaded to our critical incident management system. And then we review the recommendations that they provide. And then our quality improvement specialist staff monitor that those recommendations are implemented or what happens, because obviously not all of them are going to be implemented, but they kind of follow the case along to make sure. And then when there's a reoccurrence, we have that to go back on and say, okay, provider, this was the recommendation last time. This was or wasn't inactive. You know, what are we going to do now going forward? So it's a continuing collaborative process that we do. That's fascinating. What about some other partners? So do you also collaborate with agencies outside of APS to serve older and dependent adults who experience abuse, neglect, and exploitation? And how do you work together with them? So we also work with OIG, which is Office of Inspector General, because they do all of our licensing for group homes and assisted livings, et cetera. So we work closely with them because we don't want providers to you know, have to duplicate, oh, we gave OIG this, now we have to give the same document to DDP. So we try and collaborate that way, as well as with APS. We really try and get 
information one time instead of asking for it three different times. We collaborate with a lot of other agencies like, you know, the Elder Abuse Association that's out of like Roundup. They do a lot of payeeship for us. We have a lot of different agencies that we collaborate with to provide services, not just the ones that contract with us, but a variety of like community resource agencies that we work with. The two partners that you mentioned, APS and OIG, could you explain a little bit more just on how the responsibilities differ between your agency, so DDP, APS, and OIG? Sure. So DDP is charged with administering the actual waiver and ensuring services are delivered in healthy and safety manners. I don't know how to say that any better. But And then OIG is responsible for ensuring that facilities basically are licensed and up to code and standards for their program. They have a little bit different things that they look at. So like our supported living people don't go through the OIG licensing, but like a group home does. So our supported living people, DDP is the only one that monitors them. OIG would monitor the group homes, assisted livings, and they have to meet those criteria. APS obviously has jurisdiction over anyone who is a member that meets their criteria, which I can't remember what that's called right now. And so they are responsible for investigating abuse, neglect, and exploitation. And they also have another arm that does guardianship for many of our clients, too. Well, that's good to hear. With all these collaborations, are there any success stories that comes to mind and you might want to share? You know, I was thinking about this earlier, and I thought this one story from one of our providers up on the High Line, which the High Line is Highway 2 that runs all the way across Montana, They had a client come there, a waiver member who was 17 at the time, and he had a guardian through Child and Family Services. Well, he lived there and became 18, and his Child and Family Services guardian, you know, was no longer a guardian. And so he decided at 18 that he was you know, pretty independent, didn't need any help. And so APS and OIG and DDP kind of got together. He was having a lot of behavioral issues. He was targeting other members who lived in the home with him. And between the three agencies, we were able to really provide support for that provider, but also come up with recommendations, implement an APS guardian to help And, you know, licensing the OIG wing was able to make some really good recommendations on things they could do for supervision of other members while he was there. He did end up moving eventually, which was probably for the better. But I thought it was a really good example of how we can work together and provide each other support and also support our clients that we share and the providers who are trying to provide the service when it's not always an easy thing to do. Good to hear. And this might not be the best question to kind of wrap up the conversation, but one of the hot topics recently is about repeat clients who continually Mm. experiencing abuse, neglect, and exploitation. And I wonder whether you see those kind of clients in your agency and what are the challenges in, you know, serving these clients? We do see repeat, you know, reports on the same person over and over again. Some of the challenges for us are that, you know, we try and encourage independence and sometimes our clients don't want the help that we can offer. They don't care what we can do. They still want to live on their own and they want to be their own person. And so that's our biggest challenge is when our services are voluntary, we can't force them on anyone. And so when we have a repeated 
issue of someone being exploited or, you know, especially when it's by a family that they don't know any better. They won't take our services. They won't voluntarily get a case manager or leave the situation. I think that's the hardest challenge that we have. And there's not really, I don't know what the answer is because our agency will not force somebody to take our services. So That does sound like a challenging situation. Well, can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, who are these clients? Why is it difficult to have your needs met? And also, is there anything else that service providers might be able to do if resources are available? Or I guess what additional resources are needed? I think the clients that I was specifically talking about are clients who mostly live in the community and are fairly high functioning and don't need a lot of intervention. It's difficult to meet their needs because a lot of times they have co-occurring developmental disability with a mental illness, and our system is not necessarily set up to meet the needs of someone with a mental illness, and I think that is one thing that service providers could use as an additional resource. I think we need to get better about cross-collaboration between clients and services who have dual diagnosis needs. So we're seeing a large increase of members who not only have a developmental disability, but have a co-occurring mental illness. And my belief, whether it's true or not, is that we are seeing the benefit of early intervention. And so those people, the clients who in the past may have grown up and, you know, needed a lot more intervention, they are getting a lot of care at a young age and they're, you know, learning skills. And then when they are older, they don't need the amount of intervention that some of our previous clients who didn't have those young years available. So, you know, I think one thing we could do a lot better is working to ensure that our providers are prepared to give mental health services as well as developmental disability services. So that's my one thought. That's kind of the torch I carry whenever I can talk about it. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today, Shannon. This is very insightful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. We hope you found it useful. This podcast was produced by Studio K Productions. Our podcast logo was designed by Meng Yuwen. We welcome your feedback. Please visit elderjustice.aco.gov to leave a comment at the bottom of the web pages contact us section.